This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Welcome to Get Healthy 360. Today, I am interviewing John Maderos. He is an immigration lawyer and specialist in that area. John helps domestic and foreign companies navigate the complexities of U.S. immigration law. Hiring foreign talent can be a confusing process, and John works closely with corporate clients to help them understand that process. He represents companies of all sizes, from Fortune 500 companies to small startups to individuals in a vast array of industries, including healthcare, engineering, information technology, retail, advertising, and manufacturing. He focuses on employment-based immigration, including labor certification applications, non-immigrant petitions, including but not limited to H-1B visas, TN visas, E-3, L-1, O-1, and J-1 waivers. These also include waivers for foreign-born physicians, immigrant visa petitions, extraordinary ability petitions, national interest waivers, adjustment of status applications, employment authorization applications, advanced parole applications, and applications for re-entry permits. John also organizes legal education seminars for corporate clients and presents each year to foreign students on immigration options after graduation. He's officially the vice chair of the Minnesota and Dakota's chapter of the American Immigration Lawyers Association and is a member of the International Medical Graduate Task Force, a group of legal professionals dedicated to improving the path that international medical graduates who have completed their training in the United States must follow in becoming legally authorized to provide healthcare services in the United States. So this is this is a unique interview for me because for those of you who don't know, I actually I grew up in Canada and John helped me with my US immigration process. I have spoken to other um, physicians, lawyers, tech people who have used immigration lawyers, and John can speak to this better than I can, but if the lawyers miss deadlines and they're not they're not conscientious about getting things in when they need to, the entire application process becomes a huge mess and and really bad things happen. So I, I can wholeheartedly endorse John for um, any of your immigration needs. And I'm gonna, going to emphasize this is not a paid advertising or anything. <laughs> I, I Just for anyone that's wondering, this real, I really wholeheartedly, if you have an immigration issue, I would contact John and his firm and all the contact information will be in the show notes. So John, thank you again for helping me to become a U.S. citizen and doing this podcast. Thank you, Chris. It's I'm happy to finally be able to do this. <laughs> <laughs> Good. So let's talk a little bit to begin with about immigration is a, it's a political topic, but for my purposes, it's a healthcare topic because it's a, it, where you live affects your access to healthcare and your personal safety. So, and again, correct me if I misspeak, but every country has its own immigration philosophy from its, the time it was founded. So back, back in the founding of the United States, what is really the driving paradigm of the United States and, and immigration? Well, thanks, Chris. That's a good place to start. Well, we, we, we like to think that the America was founded on principles of freedom and principles of equality and principles of 
sanctuary. This is a place where that, that welcomes anyone from anywhere in the world. And so you, you think about the Statue of Liberty, give me a tired, you're poor, you're hungry. The, it's, 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 it's a place where it's a beacon for many people from many countries. It's a, an ideal for many people from many countries. And so we like to think of ourselves as a country that's founded by immigrants, that's, um, that's supportive and welcoming of immigrants. And we like to think that's at the heart of what we are as Americans. Uh, when, when you look at our history, that's not always the case, but it's an ideal that we try to, um, at least in word, try to aspire to. Fully recognizing that you know, there were people in the United States before the United, before immigrants came to the United States, um, but it, but it's it's an ideal. I, I think I think immigration is an ideal for many people from many different countries. An ideal for a better life. An ideal for better opportunities. An ideal for just just a better way of living for people and their families. So, without getting into the the weeds of really technical legal world. From my understanding, there are two ways to come to the United States. There's the employment-based way, and then there are a variety of other ways. Do you want to, can you discuss some of those different pathways of coming to the United States? Absolutely. So our immigration system is based on a quota system, if you will. And so there are two main ways that people can immigrate to the United States. The first way is through family sponsorship. And the second way is through employment sponsorship. So, so there has to be a magnet that draws people to the United States in order for them to be eligible for permanent residence. Um, in addition to family-based immigration and employment-based immigration, there are other ways that people can obtain legal status. And in some cases, I should say there's, there's a difference between legal status and permanent residence and citizenship. So we still, I'm trying not to use those terms collectively because they each mean something different. But there are some ways that allow for people to obtain permanent residence before that where they don't need to have a family sponsor or an employment sponsor. And that could be, for example, asylum. We have an asylum system, at least we had a pretty vibrant asylum system until um, the last, well, the last couple of years. But asylum theoretically is a way that people can apply for permanent residence without having a family sponsor and without having an employer sponsor. Then, then there are some other categories that are somewhat obscure and apply only to a select few people, um, depending on what country you're from and, and certain conditions that, that you may qualify for. But the three primary avenues to permanent residence are family, employment, and asylum. Now, I think of countries like Canada. Canada has a system that we do not have. In addition to those three, Canada has a system that does not require an, a, a family sponsor or an employment sponsor. Uh, family, Canada has a point system. And so, and, and it's a way to attract skilled workers, highly skilled workers in many areas that would help improve Canada as a country, Canada as an economy. And so that under that point system, there are ways that, and I'm not a Canadian law, immigration law expert, so, so I'll, I'll throw that caveat out there, but generally level of education earns you a certain number of points. Your age earns you a certain number of points. If you speak 
French that earns you a certain number of points. And, and when you, there's a lot of factors they look at. And when you reach a certain sum of those points, you can then qualify for permanent residence. I wish we had something like that in the United States because there are a lot of opportunities that are missed because people who are high skilled and could, could better the United States as a country and as an economy don't really have an opportunity to do so because they don't have an employer sponsor or a family sponsor. So I, I personally wish that we had a point system that was similar to Canada's. I, I would make some changes, but I wish you had a point system that allowed that, but we don't. So for the U.S., it's employer sponsor, family sponsor, asylum. Those are the three paths. Um, and then there's some a couple, couple of other obscure options as well. So the employment sponsor seems fairly straightforward and the family sponsor seems fairly straightforward where people sponsor you. I'm sure there's a lot of legal things on the back end to take care of it. Can you explain the um, asylum sponsorship and how that works? Because I, I think I feel like a lot of people don't really understand how that works. Mm -hmm. So it's not sponsorship. Um, Asylum is um, it, it first requires the person to get to the United States because you, if you're not in the United States, then what you would apply for that's like asylum is refugee status. And then when your application is processed outside the United States, you are admitted as a permanent resident, as a, as a, you're admitted as a refugee, I should say. And then you can apply for permanent residence. But asylum is kind of like refugee status, except the person is physically in the United States. And to qualify for asylum, the individual has to show that they have a well-founded fear of persecution in their home country. And that persecution has to be based on one of five factors, which is um, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or affiliation with a particular social group. And so if, if they can, in that affiliation with the political, with, with the, that affiliation with the um, a social group is where a lot of the asylum, creative asylum applications fall into place because it's intentionally not defined what that group is because that group can vary from country to country. You could have, for example, someone might say, I, 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 we, we request asylum because I'm a homosexual in my home country in West Africa that passed a law that says I, I will be jailed for life if, just because of that. So that obviously that asylum claim wouldn't necessarily be the same asylum claim from someone who's from a country that does accept homosexuality as a way of life. And so it's not like, like, like Canada or most of Europe. So it's really specific to, it's very fact specific, but, but the general idea is that it's a, it's a fair, a valid fair persecution based on race, religion, nationality, political opinion or affiliation with a particular social group. So let's say you have a family in a South American country mm-hmm. and they, you have parents who don't believe that their government should be influenced by the drug cartel and mm-hmm. they were involved in that. And then that didn't go well. So they're being threatened in that country. Mm-hmm. So for them to get, I'm just going to clarify that point for them. So for them to seek asylum, they have to physically be in the United States to get asylum. That's correct. But, but then, and this is, I think, where there's a lot, at least on my end, a lot of confusion. So if they're seeking asylum, but they have to be in the United States to get asylum, but they don't have a visa, how do they get into the United States? That's the $64,000 question. So, so some do have visas. Some, some have visitor visas, and they 
can come in as visitors and once they're here, they can claim asylum. That does happen. Um, I should also mention that there are instances where people come into the United States in other ways like students or even in a work visa and then something happens in their country where they fear persecution to go back. So in other words, there's a change in the conditions of the country while they're in the U.S. They can apply for asylum. But the vast majority of what you're talking about, Chris, is the people who come across the border without documentation. This is why the government wants to build a wall. This is why the government has increased enforcement at the border, because they know that if people get into the U.S., that, that, that's a requirement for asylum. So, so any effort that can prevent people from coming in will prevent them from applying for asylum, which you know, many people consider to be inhumane because they're applying for asylum for a reason. One, one change that this administration recently has proposed, and I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not a, an asylum lawyer, but I can, I can speak to this, but one, one change that the administration has proposed is, um, is, a, is a requirement that if an individual apply, if an individual enters the United States after going through a third country, then they're not eligible to apply for asylum. The idea would be that they should have applied for asylum in the first country they went to. Mm -hmm. So in your example, someone from Latin America, Central America, South America, if they're not Mexican, let's just say they're from Honduras, for example, they come through, I don't know, Guatemala, they come through Mexico, they come to the U.S. The U.S. would not allow them to apply for asylum because the rationale is they could have applied if they really were concerned about their life, they could have applied in Mexico instead of in waiting until they get to the United States. So that poses a whole bunch of other questions, of course, but the idea is that they have to be in the U.S. in order to apply for asylum, which is why uh, the administration that we have has put so much effort into preventing them from entering the United States because Doing so would be, would make them ineligible. They wouldn't be able to apply for asylum. Well, once they get to the United States, there is a legal me- way for them to apply for asylum. Correct. Now, there's the, this whole category of people that are undocumented immigrants, meaning they've come to the United States for whatever reason. They're working, doing whatever it is they're doing, working. And the comment that I will I've frequently heard everywhere is, "Well, why don't they just become legal?" Mm-hmm. Um, so. That's my question to you. If someone's undocumented, say they've come over here, they opened a restaurant, they're making food and they have a successful business and they just never, for whatever reason, got around to filing paperwork. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a, how, how would they navigate that process? Why don't they just become legal? Yes. Well, this, that, 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 that's a good question. That's a good opportunity for me to go back to what I said earlier, which is there's a difference between having legal status having permanent residence and having citizenship. Okay. So, so what I hear a lot is, well, why don't they just apply for citizenship? Well, the answer to that is to apply for citizenship. You have to be a permanent resident for a number of years before you qualify. So then the answer, then the next question is, well, why don't they apply for permanent residence? Well, like I just told you, permanent residence requires a sponsor. And if somebody doesn't have an employer to sponsor them, and if somebody doesn't have a family member to sponsor them, that's not an option. And then the question, then the next question might be, well, then why don't they just apply for some temporary status that allows them to be here? And the answer to that, it involves a lot of different factors. So there, there are some temporary visas and temporary statuses that allow people to be here. Um, but 
but it, it it's hard to get a temporary status if you don't have status because because what we're talking well let me let me go into the categories first and then I'll talk about the process and then that'll help inform your or answer your question with respect to temporary visas there are there are a few that are that are family based visas so things like fiance visa for example that's one um, if you want to have a, a a family member visit you I want my mother to visit me or my mother-in-law to visit me. Um, that's an employment, that's a visitor visa. If you have, in addition to the, the fiance visa, there's also a visa for, for people who are already married to U.S. citizens, but not in the United States. Those are all temporary visas that allow people to get here. The temporary visas that are, those are the family based ones. They don't have any kind of employment authorization automatically attached to them, first off. And so it's not like they can start working on those visas. The way it works is they come in on those visas and then they apply for work authorization, which takes several months. But the other piece to it is that if, if somebody is here, well, let me, let me talk about the employment options first. And then I'll, again, I'll go to the process. In the employment world, there are a number of temporary visas that allow people to, to be here and work temporarily. They include H-1B visas, which are the, the visas that are for professionals, uh, skilled workers, which means ha- they have at least a bachelor's degree and the position requires at least a bachelor's degree. There are H-2 visas. H-2 visas are temporary work visas for uh, very either agricultural work or very uh, short-term jobs that, are, that are, have like a peak season or uh, uh, temporary in nature. For example, it's Christmas season and the retail industry needs a lot of people to work cashiers, for example, those, or, or they could be crop, a particular crop season. So, so the idea with the H2 is that they're very short term identified, um, temporary work visas. And then there's some others like L1s, which are intercompany transferee visas, O1s, which are extraordinary ability. So there's a lot of employment based visas, but all of those visas require employment an employer sponsor. And so even in the temporary world, you need an employer sponsor. So let's just say to go back to your question, let's just say we have somebody who's undocumented in the United States. Why can't they just apply for one of these visas, assuming that they have a sponsor, then it becomes even more complicated because the process require, if, 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 if I'm an employer and I have, and, and there's somebody who comes to me who says, I'm undocumented, but I want to work for you. And I file, I say, and, and I like this person. I think they'll do a good job. I want to sponsor them. I, I may have a petition that I file with the immigration service that gets approved, even though that takes months, by the way, months and months, sometimes a year or more. Um, but let's just say that I do that. I want to sponsor someone. Great. I cannot change that person's status from undocumented to now a documented because in order to change a status, you have to have a status to change. And so even that would require the person to leave the United States and then come back in based on that approved petition. So that it's not, it's a, it's a fallacy and a myth to think that, oh, they can just file papers and they should, they can be here legally. It, it, it's, they can't, they can't. There are some categories, I will say, there are some categories that have allowed that. For example, there's something called temporary protected status, TPS. TPS is a temporary work status that allows people to apply for permission to be here and permission to work if the U.S. government deems it unsafe for them to return to their home country. Now, that 
doesn't necessarily have to mean the same standard as asylum. That could be there's an earthquake in your country or there was a volcano in your country or there's something. doesn't have to be war. doesn't have to be anything that would be the basis of asylum. It could just be anything where it's unsafe to go back to your country. So let's just say that you are visiting from uh, Bermuda and while while you're here, Bermuda gets a massive hurricane and the 90% of the island is wiped out. You can't go back to Bermuda right now because it's not safe. The federal government could designate Bermuda for temporary protected status. And then once they've done that, the person could apply for permission to be here and work here. It's usually for maybe a year, 18 months until it's safe to go back to their home country. So that's one one option. The other one that you might hear about in the news a lot is something called DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. That's been in the news a lot. So can you explain what that is? Just because it's in the news a lot, and mm-hmm. I know I don't understand it at all. I just hear the term. Yeah. So so what DACA is, DACA is a program, it stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And it was a program that actually started under the Obama administration. And what it what it refers to specifically is there have been children who came to the United States in when they when they were really young they were in many cases they were babies they came with their parents and what what happened was they stayed here so even though they they entered without documentation not on their own volition because again a lot of these people came at, they came as children all of them came as children many as babies there was recognition that there we have a population and a generation of people who are here. They're more American than they are whatever country they came from. They they're educated here. They they speak English. And so, what do we do with them? Can can we really expect them to go back to their home country where they would theoretically be a stranger? And so. And so what happened in, in, in 2012, I believe it was, the, the administration then allowed certain nationals, um, nationals of, of, they allowed people who were, who fit within this definition of childhood arrivals to apply for permission to be here. Again, it's a temporary permission to be here that allows them to live and work in the United States. Now, the, the, the challenge with this particular population is that it's a it's a, it's a it's a highly educated population and it's a it's a population that's educated by the US educational system and so so it it it's it's a very different population if you will for from someone who arrives from from anywhere really like last week or last month these are people who have been there here all their lives and so so the government recognized that we need to be able to provide some kind of benefit for them because as these children get older, they, they want to go to college and a lot of them have a hard time going to college because they don't have permanent residence. So they're just in this limbo and this limbo that they're in has been extended every couple of years to allow them to continue to work and to continue to, to remain in the United States, but it's a temporary program. And so um, very, so, so the Trump administration in 2017 decided that it was going to end this program and there was a lot of litigation that came out out from that because so it 
So wait, just to jump in. So from mm-hmm. a from a lawyer standpoint, a legal standpoint, right now you're speaking at this very high level administrative viewpoint. But just to reframe this a little bit, so you have someone who's who was brought over here as a child of their own free will. I, I mean, again, I mean they have no free will; they're a child. So their parents bring them over. They grow up in a U.S. school. They go to high school, and then they really, for all intents and purposes, they're American because they've mm-hmm. been here for their whole lives. Mm-hmm. So if the administration changed, what the, the Trump administration was looking to do was change that. So then where would these people go? They would go back to the country that they came from. So they would literally, they would just, they would from. just send them back. Yeah. They would just send them back. So it, it seems a little in, it seems very incomprehensible to just take someone who's only lived in this country send them back to another country that they probably won't even speak the language and say, have at it, get off the plane and, and go do things. That's correct. It's incomprehensible. <laughs> and, 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 but, but that doesn't you know, necessarily stop the administration from trying to make that happen. So, so the administration tried to stop that and people challenged it. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And, and just recently, I wanted to say like two weeks ago, the Supreme Court ruled not that the administration couldn't end the program, but that the administration couldn't end the program the way it did. In, in other words, it, it said you're violating due process. So if you can do this in a way that doesn't violate due process, then that's a different story. And so that's reigniting a campaign to have this. And this, this will be a, an election uh, topic for sure. Because what what the push for is now is to just make this a permanent program. Let people apply who, who are DACA recipients, let them apply for permanent residence. Because this is the only home they've ever known all their lives. So I'm I'm fairly good at seeing the the counter argument to a variety of things, but I honestly can't think of a single reason why you would end that program. <laughs> I really can't. I, 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 I would. How, how about if it, how about if it um, ignites your political base by saying we're deporting all these people, but your the, political base is very xenophobic. Let's just say that as a, as a hypothetical, your no, political I, base is very xenophobic and you get to say to them, we're going to end this program that will send thousands of kids back to the, thousands of illegal immigrants back to their home country. That's the rationale behind it. But, but you're I, right. It's not really a logical, even even comprehensible way to justify it. Because this is the kid who's who has grown up down the street, who's gone to the same kindergarten, grade school, middle school, high school. They've been here their entire lives. Mm-hmm. They're looking to go to college. They want to get a job and contribute to society. Mm-hmm. And I would say it's cruel and unusual to say, you know what? Even though you came here as a baby and you know other no other home, we're just going to send you back to Guatemala or Honduras or something where you don't even speak mm-hmm. the language. You don't you don't know how to navigate that system, but we're just going to put you mm-hmm. there because. And, this, and not only that, but these are people who could contribute in a very productive way. And the, the arguments you hear about undocumented immigrants is they're not going to be able to contribute to society. So you've got a, you've got an entire generation that you basically nurtured. And yeah, they can contribute to our society and that's the population you want to go after. That doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. So, so 
And then on, on the, just the healthcare side of things, the, the people who want to come here, they're doing so for better lives or because they want better lives. So you have, um, celebrities who have millions of dollars convicted of bribing admissions officials to get their kids into a better school. Mm -hmm. They clearly have a lot of money, but they still are willing to undergo illegal activity to get their kids into a better school. And they get a slap on the wrists, mm -hmm. like pay a fine. I, I don't, I don't know the details of, of those cases, but minimal, minimal issues with highly illegal activity. You have other people in other countries that are motivated enough for, to work hard and get better life. They're risking dying, crossing borders, crossing oceans, literally oceans where they could drown, risking their kids' lives to come to the United States. That's not going to be someone who's going to sit around on welfare. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so right. it seems like that would be the type of people you want in the country. That's exactly the argument that you and I would make. Exactly. But you're also, you also have to keep in mind that the person who is on the boat, on the ocean, crossing the river, mm -hmm. crossing the ocean to get here, is, and once they get here, you also have to understand that they are more vulnerable than people who are already here with lawful status. And when, again, when you're, when you're, when you want to pander to your political base, you get to go after the vulnerable people. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's an easy target, if you will. I, I'll, I'll also say, I mean, the, the example you said of the, the wealthy um, person who commits all these, these fraudulent acts to get their kid into college and gets a slap on the wrist. Don't forget that the, that, that counters the African-American woman who, who had her kid attend a school outside of the jurisdiction. So for this, I think this is a really interesting. Years, this is a really interesting you know? story. So, I, for anyone who doesn't know, can you go through and give the details of that case? I, I don't know the details, but what I do know here's what I do know. I do know that there there is a woman who wanted her child to go to school that was in a district outside of where they lived, and it was a better school and she wanted her child to, to attend that school. And so she enrolled her child in that school. And I'm not sure she may have even fraudulently put the address where they lived. I'm not quite sure if she committed fraud to get that application in, but she submitted the application to allow her daughter to go to the school. And she was found to, to violate um, the, 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 I don't know if it was an ordinance or a law that was in effect that required people to be in that district and in order to attend school. She, she was African-American and she was sentenced to five years in jail. For that. That's, that's the outcome. And then what you're talking about, Chris, the example you just said was the, um, the, the counter that with the wealthy white person who, fought, who, who finagles college admissions applications and even pays people to to accept those those fraudulent applications to have their kid go to that college. She gets slapped on the wrist and shame on you. So this is a double standard. The, the point is, and to, to bring this back to immigration, mm -hmm. the point is, we what is America? It's it's a double standard. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it is. It's a double standard, and this is and and, and, and that that plays itself out very well when we talk about immigration and um, because you'll have, you'll have one person say, 
immigrants shouldn't be here, send them away. But then, you know, their best friend is from Mexico and I don't mean her, you know, it, it's like, well, how, how do you live with that kind of a mentality? But we're going off track, I suppose. So no. And then, well, to, the counter argument to be, I can sit down across from you and say, well, John, it's great that you're, you know, a lo- you're a lawyer and you're helping people, but why do we want all these foreigners in the country? Because there are plenty of Americans. There's an unemployment rate in the, uni- in the United States. Why would you help all of these people lawfully come into this country? Mm-hmm. Why aren't these U.S. companies or hospitals or tech firms hiring foreign people? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a few ways I can answer that. The, the first way is the question you ask is, why are you helping these people? And I, I think of my role as not not necessarily limited to helping these people, but also helping these companies, helping the economy, helping these businesses. Because again, the, the company is my client. They're, they're sponsoring a foreign worker. There's a reason why they're doing that. And so, so when I think about it that way, it's helping more than just the individual. It's helping, it's helping the economy and it's helping anyone who benefits from the work that that individual does. So that's, that's one part of my answer. The other part of my answer is that um, the reality of the situation is that our country's educational system has a lot of improvement to do. We're just not pumping out particularly STEM degree individuals in the numbers that other countries are. So when my client says, I want to do an HMB for this e-commerce engineer, it's because they don't have enough U.S. workers who are e-commerce engineers to do that. And so so if we're going to talk about why can't they just hire a U.S. worker, we also need to be able to talk about why aren't there enough U.S. workers to hire. I understand that we are in uh, an era of COVID right now where we have a high unemployment rate and we have um, people without jobs. I completely get that. Um, but at the same time, there, I'm still getting calls from employers saying, I just got one yesterday where an employer said, we need to hire an agricultural scientist because in Montana, because we don't, we've been recruiting for a year and a half and we can't find any right now. So, so the reality is that the, the U.S. workforce is attracted to foreign labor partly, partly because they can't find the, the numbers in the U.S. that just don't exist. I mean, I represent a lot of hospitals and healthcare providers, and, and a lot of the, the foreign-born physicians that work for those companies work in under, medically underserved areas, and they're a medically underserved area for a reason. That's, by definition, there just aren't enough healthcare professionals. And so... A lot of a lot of the foreign-born medical um, providers that I, the companies I work for that hire foreign-born providers, they the, they tell me and 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 I see this with each petition that I put together, that they're not taking jobs from U.S. workers. They're not taking jobs from a cardiologist or a an e go back to the e-commerce engineer. They're they're not taking jobs from U.S. workers because. There just aren't enough U.S. workers to do those jobs. That's the reality of the situation. When we talk about permanent residents, not temporary residents, but when we talk about permanent residents, so let's just say 
you have somebody who's working for an employer in a in, in a temporary legal temporary status that employer then says i want to sponsor you for permanent residence the vast majority of the petitions with very few exceptions the vast majority of those petitions require the employer to undergo a process called labor certification and that's the process where the employer has to show that they cannot find a qualified willing, able, or available U.S. worker to do the job. And it requires the employer to undergo extensive recruitment, more so than they would do for U.S. workers. They have to do six different forms of recruitment, and then they have to show that they were not able to find a U.S. worker to do that job. So so it's not just that, oh, you've got this company that's hiring foreign workers, and why can't you hire U.S. workers? They, it, it's, they're going through a process because they can't find U.S. workers. This process costs tens and thousands of dollars per person. If, if an employer could really find a U.S. worker to do that job, it doesn't make any sense for them to spend $10,000 per person to go through this process. The reality is, is they're not finding people to fill those jobs. Same can be true with the temporary status that I was talking about, the, the H-2s. The H-2 also requires employers to go through a process where they have to show they can't find a U.S. worker to do that job. So we're not just talking about high-skilled workers. We're talking about crop pickers. We're talking about the, the low-skilled jobs, the people to put landscapers, people to do roofing. We're not, we don't have enough U.S. workers to do those jobs, which is why employers also have to look for, for to foreign labor to help fill those positions because they just don't have U.S. workers applying for those jobs. So the question about, say, the H-1 or H-2 visas, H-1 being highly skilled and, correct me if I'm wrong, the H-2 are laborers. Mm-hmm. So there's a large unemployment rate. There are a lot of people mm-hmm. who who are not working. Mm-hmm. So despite that large unemployment, you're saying they can't find people to pick, I don't know, oranges or apples or whatever think- else. I think it's too soon to tell right now because mm-hmm. um, because the unemployment rate dropped dramatically during COVID and it's starting to, to I'm sorry, it, it, the unemployment rate went up dramatically and it's starting to go down now. So, so as the economy recovers, there are definitely um, people going back to work. What, what I'm suggesting is that the Department of Labor has in place a mechanism that allows uh, – that requires employers to test the job market before they hire any foreign worker permanently. There are some exceptions to that, but by and large, that's the, that's the um, first requirement to permanent residence. Now let's just say you have an employer in that process and then COVID hits. Okay. So, so we have, I, I have many employers who have gone through this process. They have the application. I'm still getting approvals from the Department of Labor, where the Department of Labor is saying, yes, you have shown that you can't find a U.S. worker to fill this job. They're still coming through with, from the Department of Labor. I just got one two days ago. But but let's just say that COVID hits, and then we have, you know, the president comes out with a proclamation that says, we're not going to let any more foreign workers come into the United and any more we're going to limit the number of foreigners coming into the United States until our economy improves. That's that's the rationale behind what he's doing. Well the reality is is that does nothing does nothing to address the situation because people are already here. People are already here. Foreign people are already here. So what what we can expect reading between the lines of this proclamation the recent one that he issued 
what we can expect is that they will, the, the administration will now try to severely limit the green card permanent residence process for people who are already lawfully here. And that requires a different process than a proclamation that requires an act of Congress. And that's what we probably can expect to see what happens next. So, so when, when that's why I say it's a little too soon to tell, because one of the, one of the speculations many of us have is that the, the president might try to revoke all of those labor certifications that have been approved. He might revoke them and require employers to go through that process all over again. Now, if you're an employer, and you just spent $60,000 to do six of these applications, and you're told by the federal government, we are going to revoke everything you did, and now you have to do this again, another $60,000, you can imagine the uproar that this will cause in the business community. Because that's what, that's, that's what will happen. Well, when I think of foreign workers, at least in the world of tech, so the, the founders of Google, which drives the economy and drives, it makes my life easier to be able to search things. I believe they were they're from Russia. Um, Jeff Bezos, I, who's Amazon, who I think everyone uses Amazon. I think he was the son of Cuban immigrants. And Elon Musk is from South Africa, who has done all of those people have done phenomenal things for the country. I mean, you can argue mm-hmm. about politics or whatever, but I think it'd be hard to argue that they've driven. They have well, all those individuals have driven a tremendous amount of growth in the country. So if you mm-hmm. really have foreign individuals with unique skill sets that US companies need to make them very competitive why would you cripple those country those companies by taking away those key people that US workers can't fill because if you if if I were the CEO of a company I'd really want the best employees possible regardless of where they came from mm-hmm. because that's how you get a competitive advantage right exactly and and the to extend that thought just a little bit more by limiting by continue to placing continuing to place limits on those high skilled workers who are in the country what you're basically doing is you're you're basically sending them back to their home countries and having them compete against us instead of instead of contribute to the united states they then they will then work with companies outside the united states that will that will have that talent that we will no longer have and that, that that no longer lets us maintain our competitive edge. That's the, that's the argument. Well, and if I if I pretend say I'm I'm this highly skilled tech worker and I know all of I have this phenomenal skill set in in computer things, I'm hired by Google or Amazon or some fancy company, and I, and I really like the U.S. I love the U.S. I love the company I'm working for. But then this proclamation changes and they send me back to some other country. Well, then the natural thing I'm going to do is get hired by some other large tech company in say Canada or South America mm-hmm. or Europe or China or wherever. Mm-hmm. And then not only would I take my skill set, I would take all that information that I, I gained from that original company, giving mm-hmm. that new company that hires me a massive competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Exactly. In, in, in fact, similar to that is um, people who come to the United States to pursue degrees from our universities we have a lot of foreign students in the United States. And this administration is has been working overtime to severely limit the, the ability of those foreign students to work in the United States once they completed their training. And what so not only do you have 
international companies getting that talent, but you have international co- companies getting that talent that was that who who was trained in the United States. That's the irony of it. It, it and it, and so it's 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 a it's a double edged sword if you think about it. It's like if you if you if you are going to if you're going to remove people from the United States who were trained here, you would go back to DACA, who were educated here, you 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 run the risk of not maintaining a competitive edge because that talent is no longer your talent, our talent. It's somebody else's talent. Well, it, it's I, business. You can, a lot of people use the analogy of business in war. And Germany during the Second World War, they they persecuted a lot of people. One of those people was Albert Einstein, who's Jewish. So he left and came to the United States. And mm-hmm. that's why we had the bomb. It it would have been interesting in a bad way if they didn't if Germany during World War II didn't have that policy and Einstein mm-hmm. stayed with Germany and then they developed the atomic bomb first. Mm-hmm. Because Sometimes when you have a single individual with that unique skill set, it can make a massive difference on a national scale. And it's really interesting that you use the analogy of World War II and Nazi Germany in, to, to prove that point. I mean, we're removing people and we have a lot of draconian, a lot of, a lot of very similarly, you could call them similarly fascist policies that, that mirror the policies that were in Germany during World War II. So if we're removing that talent, yeah, where's that going to go? So, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting analogy that you're making. And, and again, just to stay cent- very centered on, on all of this, like I, I don't have any strong political leaning one way or another. I became a doctor because I don't really want to get into the politics. I really just care about health and people getting better. Mm-hmm. But from objectively, it seems like a bad idea to keep separate children from their parents. Mm-hmm. It seems like a bad idea to to purposely target certain groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and from a, just a purely business standpoint, it seems bad to get rid of your best talent. Mm-hmm. You lose your competitive advantage. Like it's just bad on all fronts. And I completely appreciate where you're coming from. I, I tend to keep my political views out of my professional life as well, but it's really hard to not for immigration, not to be a political issue. It's really hard, especially when we're just months away from a federal election. Mm-hmm. This, that's the other thing I'll say. This administration notwithstanding, immigration has always been this issue during during presidential elections, and then it sort of fades away into the background for a couple of years, and then we have another election. It pops back up, and then it sort of fades away into the background, and it pops back. It's, it's, a, it's a cycle that repeats itself, that has repeated itself for decades. It's just the way it is. Immigration becomes something that people talk about when there's a, there's an election, the, what makes this particular time in history different is that it's not just during an election. It's 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 been a consistent barrage of of um, policy after policy after policy after change after change after change to just get rid of um, immigrate to, to suspend immigration. That's what this administration really wants to do. It wants to stop immigration. It's tried to do it with undocumented people. The Supreme Court has pushed back many times saying, you can't really do that. You can't really do that. And you can't really do that. Not just the Supreme Court, but federal courts. And now they're saying, well, maybe this is a time when we start to go after illegal immigration. I'm simply saying that you cannot separate the politics 
from from the issue of immigration now. You just can't because one, the topic of immigration is a political topic in and of itself. But two, this administration has has basically succeeded and survived over the years by making immigration a political issue. It is what is at the center of the current administration. It is exactly what's at the center. So it's really hard not to. I appreciate where you're coming from. And like I said, I, I try to keep my personal political views out of it, but there's sometimes you just can't do that. So we've had a lot of high level conversations in, in this, on this podcast about the, what the administration is doing, but we never really, or you never really specifically said what has been done and the consequences of those actions, because I agree with you. You it it's immigration is for better or worse, a political topic, and it's one thing to talk in theory of, well, illegal shouldn't come into the country. It's an entirely different thing to look at a child at the border crying because they're being separated from their mom because there's humanity to it. And, and that's what the country is founded on. Right. So there are lots of things this administration has done that um, – that or has tried to done because in in many cases the courts have stepped in and basically said you can't do that because again we have a we have a, a due process of law so if the if the administration wants to change something there are ways that they have to do that um, but there's lots of things that they that the administration has done that has stayed in place and um, has impacted people's ability to come to the United States and it's impacted people's ability to stay in the United States. And it's impacted the, um, the business community, their ability to attract uh, foreign talent. So, so some, of the, some of the things that the administration did initially was, was put together or implement a ban of people coming to the United States. Initially, they called it the Muslim ban because that's what the administration called it. Um, and the Supreme, which was basically a ban for people from predominantly Middle Eastern countries, um, where the government, the, the courts have held you can't, you can't really do that because it's, it's discriminatory because you're, you're discriminating against um, Muslim people. And so what they did was they revised the language. So now it's no longer called the Muslim ban, but it's called another ban. And they were able to get that through. So there's a provision of the Immigration Act, 212F. And Section 212F allows the president to limit the entry of people coming to the United States if their entry would be detrimental to the United States. So they, the administration relied on this particular provision to basically get its Muslim ban through, even though we're not calling it that anymore, that's what they've done. So that was one of the things that they, they, they've done. Um, with respect to that same provision of the Immigration Act that allows the president to suspend entry, um, he's also, with, with, when COVID hit, the rationale that was used was um, people coming to the United States pose a health interest, uh, pose a health um, risk to people in the United States. So we're going to not have people from China, for example, come to the United States. And then they would say, um, we're going to have people, we're going to ban the entry of people from other countries as well from coming into the United States. 
So they were able to do that, relying on the same section of the law. They then, um, they then went and banned uh, people from Europe. They basically said uh, anyone who's been in a, a Shenzhen country, which is most countries in Europe, they have to. They, they, they if you were in a, a country, a Shenzhen country. What is it? A white country? Shenzhen. It's a Shenzhen is a German word. It basically means it's a it's a region. It, it, it's basically a coalition of European countries, if you will. Shenzhen area is an area where people can travel from one country to another without requiring a visa within Europe. As part of the European Union, they get this Shenzhen visa, so they can someone from France can go to Germany without getting a, without needing a visa to get into Germany, for example. So. So this region that allows people to travel freely, um, if you're, which, which again includes most countries from Europe, if you're from this, these areas, then if you were in the, any of those countries for 14 days before coming into the United States, we will not allow you to come into the United States. So then there was that proclamation. Then there was the next one that said, we're going to include England and Ireland and Wales, the United Kingdom, in that as well so so we that provision of the law has been has been used to to keep out a lot of people it, it in fact just two three days ago um the proclamation there was there was um well actually let me say one more there was another proclamation that came out that said that um anyone applying for and this was in april of this year just so you know how recent it was anyone who's applying for permanent residence outside the united states so if you're applying for a permanent resident visa outside the united states we're not going to let you into the country so clearly they're trying to to limit family-based immigration by doing that because that's most people who apply for permanent resident visas outside the u.s are family-based categories because employment-based categories, people already in the U.S. and they they apply for permanent residence that way, and so and then just two days ago, that April proclamation was extended through the end of December, and it was also um, that 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 proclamation from two days ago that extended the earlier one to December also added a number of non-immigrant, I'm sorry, temporary employment categories like the H1s and the L1s. There are, so, so that now there's a ban of, on, there's an entry ban for people who um, will become, who come in on those categories if they don't already have visas. So, so what is the so visa, now, what is the visa with extraordinary talent? O1. Okay. And that is not on the list. So O1 extraordinary talent could theoretically still come to the United States. The problem is the embassies are all closed, so nobody's issuing visas anyway. So so to have these proclamations that suspend entry seems a little redundant and unnecessary because they the, the, the people can't get visas anyway because because the embassies are closed. And so 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 the president's relying on these this this section of the immigration act that allows him to prevent entry into the united states but what's ironic about it is that the rationale behind it is you're going to spread covid we have the highest number of covid cases and the highest number of covid deaths in the world okay because we are not taking precautions we are we are we are we have an administration that's saying we're not going to fund the nih in certain research projects anymore. We have an administration that says we're not going to encourage testing anymore. We're going to encourage people not be tested because 
the more tests you do, the more cases you have, which I think is a, an, a ridiculous statement. It's like saying, let's stop issuing death certificates so we can all live forever. I mean, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And so, but that's the rationale behind it. So the rationale is we're going to keep these people out because they pose a health risk to the United States, but the United States already has the highest level of COVID cases in the world. And so, so you get to see how that, how that the use of that provision of the immigration act isn't really justified because if you just go one step below that surface, you get to see that, that there's, there's gotta be something else behind this because that's just not a true statement. Now the proclamation from a couple of days ago um, which added the the employment-based categories, the H's and the L's, and related family members and some other categories. That proclamation, the rationale behind that one, has to do with the economy. So, so that one doesn't say we're we're restricting entry because of a health crisis. They're saying we're restricting entry because we have an economy that needs to rebuild. So if these people are coming in on employment visas, then we, that doesn't help improve the numbers for U.S. workers. But keep in mind, these people have already been approved by the government to, to work fill these jobs. And these people, in many cases, are already filling these jobs. And so... And again, keep in mind, based on our conversation earlier, that a lot of these jobs cannot be filled by U.S. workers. So, so wait, let, let me let me clarify because I'm a little bit lost. So okay. you have the U.S. government government has a let's let's say I own a company. I'm the CEO of of whatever company I own, and I've paid all sorts of money because I need someone to do with a very specific skill set, and I have to pay extra money, thousands of dollars. For the legal process to prove that there's no other U.S. citizens that can fill this process, either they can't fill it or they don't want to fill it, what have you. Mm-hmm. So I've gone through this entire process to try and correct me where I'm misspeaking. So I go through this whole process and have this great employee, and he's helping my or I, he or she is helping my my company grow, and I'm making all sorts of money, and I'm hiring more people, and this Keystone employee that's helping all of this growth suddenly, the administration is saying, well, you can't keep them. The the administration right now is saying that if they're outside the United States and they don't have a visa, they can't come in. That's what the administration is saying. But the administration is also saying that within the next, I believe it's 30 days, it might be 60 days, the Department of Labor is going to consult with the immigration agency to determine how to deal with people who are already in the United States. And that language, the, what, what many of us interpret that to mean and what we anticipate is that the, the government will threaten to revoke all the previously approved petitions and have employees refile petitions all over again. So, so I have this, let me, we don't know the so I have, that. so back to, to my story. So I have, I have a company and I've hired this great employee and they're helping me make all this money. I'm hiring more people. So now based on what you're telling me is the immigration office world is then going to talk to the labor world of some sort. And then I may have to go through this entire process again, costing me more money, money I could have been put towards hiring more people or buying computers, which would further drive the the economy or buying more widgets or computers to make widgets or devices to make widgets. I have to pay for more paperwork. Correct. I have a company right now with an executive, a chief executive in Denmark 
and they, they're transferring him to the United States because he, um, he is expected to develop a, a, um, section, a section of this business to, for it to grow in the United States. He's going to be the sales director and he can't get here. So all so those jobs, all the people he's, he's expected to hire, it's not happening until he gets here. And we and don't then, know when he'll get here. So if, if this, I don't know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hammer this point. So this, this super qualified guy from Denmark, if he came to the U.S., this company then would grow mm-hmm. and provide lots of jobs for the economy and, and the trickle-down effect, whatever. Lots of people would make lots of money off this. Mm-hmm. But because of the administration decision in stopping him from coming, now this company is going to suffer. Correct. That's a terrible economic That's idea. That's absolutely correct. It's, an, it's a terrible economic idea, but, but it's also an underreported terrible economic idea. And so what happens is, when, again, when you hear immigration, you hear the, um, the, the reports of the undocumented people at the border. You don't hear the CEO who's stuck in, Canada, in, in Denmark and can't get here. You don't hear those stories, but those there are there are many, many, many of those stories. You don't hear so. For example, this 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 proclamation that I was just telling you about. Mm-hmm. The proclamation says if you don't have an H and B visa, you're outside the United States. You can't come in. I've got foreign doctors that I work with. Foreign doctors who are outside the United States. I can't get them back here. I can't get them here. The proclamation has a has an exception, and here's what the exception says. This proclamation applies to these people with the exception of several categories. And one of those categories says, so for example, one of the, this proclamation I was just talking about that went into effect a couple of days ago, it prevents the entry of people in the United States in certain employment-based categories, including H-1Bs. H-1Bs are your doctor, include your doctors, okay? And so what it says, if, if you're outside the United States and you don't have an H-1B visa, you cannot come into the United States. Basically, that's what it says. And then it has, and, and there's another category for J-1. J-1 is an exchange program visa. Um, it's, it's also the visa that a lot of medical residents get to come study to do their training in the United States, residents and fellows. And so under the J category, it basically says J1s are not eligible or will be, will be prevented from entering the United States, but they make an exception for medical residents. So that's good. And mm-hmm. medical, um, medical uh, fellows, anyone doing the medical training in the United States are exempt from this. That's great. But, wait, 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 wait. but yeah, but what happens after their training? So what happens after the training, then they get sponsored by an employer to do an H-1B. And let's just say that, that the employer says we're going to now, or they find an employer that's going to sponsor you for H-1B. The employer files an H-1B petition for them. If they're not in the United States and they don't have an H-1B visa and they're outside the United States, this, this proclamation says you cannot come into the United States. And so you've got a doctor who's got, maybe even approved it to the immigration service has already approved the petition. He just needs to get his visa to come here. He's not allowed to come in. There are some exceptions, very limited exceptions, but, but I find this exception most, most curious. It says that um, one of the exceptions involves, it includes, here it is, medical, anyone who will provide medical care to individuals who have contracted COVID-19 and are currently hospitalized. 
So that's part of the like the national interest mm-hmm. category. So so they come we're going to make an exception for people who are coming to the United States because there's a national interest of the United States to have them here. And the national interest is limited to those who are being hospitalized. So you, so so a physician who's coming to the United States to treat covid patients who aren't being hospitalized by the way is not allowed to get a visa. How on earth is that? Does that make sense? How, well, how on earth does that make sense? From a medical standpoint, you're, the administration is blocking people who want to treat, who can treat this COVID virus because it's not just the hospitalization. There's all the lung scarring and all the follow-up, which we still don't really know about um, exactly. afterwards. What about all the rehab needs they need, the pain exactly. management needs, exactly. um, their neurologic deficits that will all be managed? Exactly. But, but the national interest to have these people here is only to treat patients who are being hospitalized. It it makes no sense whatsoever. It's completely ignorant of reality right now. And and then the other part of this proclamation, which I find even, well, even equally curious is that, so so the way to think about this, Chris, is that that section of the immigration act that allows the president to prevent entry of people into the United States is limited to just that entry into the United States, that section of the Immigration Act does not allow the president to make any changes for people who are already in the United States. Like I said earlier, that requires an act of Congress or some kind of rulemaking process. He can't just announce this in a proclamation. And so, and he knows that because he's tried doing it in a proclamation and it was struck down. So what, what this proclamation says is that in addition to limiting entry, the Secretary of Labor will meet with the Secretary of Homeland Security to, to look at appropriate actions to ensure that those who are in the United States do not benefit at the disadvantage, at the disadvantage, to the disadvantage, um, United States worker. And so, so what that signals, what that signals is the permanent residence piece. It's saying, that's where I said earlier, the, many of us speculate that what he's going to do is he's going to revoke previously approved permanent. The permanent residence process is a process where the employer files, goes through this process with the Department of Labor to show they can't find a U.S. worker, files a petition with the Immigration Service that gets approved. And if you remember at the very beginning of this podcast, I said we have a quota-based system. So there's a limited number of permanent resident visas available each year. So after that petition is approved, people have to wait. And in some cases, Indian nationals, Chinese nationals, they have to wait maybe up to 10 years to apply for permanent residence because of our quota. They're already in line. They've got the approved petition. But they're in, but they cannot do that last step because of our quota system. What this is threatening to do is revoke all that's been approved and already been done and, and require employers to do it all over again. And so, so this is where you're going to, you're going to see a lot of, you're going to see a lot of court cases. You're going to see a lot of litigation around this particular issue because that's the law doesn't allow him to do that. So, so we've talked about some of the things he's done. We talked about the, the, the travel bans. We've talked from the Muslim ban all the way to the proclamation that was issued just a couple of days ago. But there's, there's also, I should also mention that there's also been a lot of things that this administration has done to, um, to prevent or to impact legal immigration for those already here. Um, it, so, so when the, one of the first things that this administration did when it when it came into to, to power, was it issued 
something called a buy American, hire American rule. And it ba- that, that Baja, buy American, hire American, what that did was it, it was an executive order that basically laid the groundwork for everything else this administration. Okay. Okay. So, so, so we talked about the Muslim ban. We talked about the travel bans. We talked about the COVID bans and we talked about the proclamation that was just issued a couple of days ago. That's, that's one side of what this administration has done, preventing people from coming into the United States. But like I said, the, the, the provision of the Immigration Act 212F allows the president to suspend the entry of people into the United States, but that's all it does. It, it suspends the entry. For people who are already here, the administration needs to go through a different process if it wants to make some changes. And that process could be a formal rulemaking process. In other words, how are we going to implement an existing law? Or it has to go through a legislative process where Congress has to actually change the laws in order to in order for them to to implement the changes that the administration wants to impose. And so with respect to people in the United States, it's a, it's a longer process and it is a process that the administration has to go through, but they've been working really hard at making changes. And so the, one of the things that they did, one of the very first things this administration did when it came into power was it issued an executive order called Buy American, Hire American, B-A-H-A, Baja. And what that d- did is it laid the framework for all the other all the other things that the administration intended to do. It basically said, if we're, with, with respect to immigration, anything that we do is going to put U.S. workers, make them a priority. We're going to make U- the U.S. workforce a priority over foreign workers, which, I mean, sounds very patriotic and sounds really nice. Nobody really knew exactly what that meant, but that's what, and in theory, like that sounds not inconsistent with what we currently have. Like I said, we have to test the U.S. job market if, if we want to hire foreign workers permanently. So, so fine. But, but then what happened was there were a series of, of memos and, and um, executive orders that the administration put out that started to hit businesses really hard one of the things that they that they put out was they were going to increase the number they were going to uh, change the definition for what qualifies for an h1b position professional occupation what qualifies so in in the way they did that was they rescinded a memo that the same agency put out several years earlier that talks about computer-related positions, IT-related positions. And so what, to spare you the gory details, what it basically means is that they changed the definition for employment, for IT computer positions. And as a result of that, there was a rapid increase in denials of H-1B petitions. Even today, H-1B petitions are, there's, a, there's at least a 30% increase in the denials of petitions since before this administration took office. What they, what they also did was they also um, said that they issued a memo that said, we're no longer going to defer to our prior determination. So, so even though you may have had an approved petition, H-1B petition valid for three years, even though we might have approved that three years ago, when you file for your extension, we're not necessarily going to defer to that approval. So we're going to re-adjudicate it on its merits all over again. So, so that's why when I mentioned earlier that you have people like Indian nationals who are here for 10 years because of our quota system, that's why you have people who've been here for 
a really long time doing filling these positions with the immigration services now saying the position no longer qualifies so we're going to deny it so so that's a reality that 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 businesses say they were going to make it difficult for employers who place employees at third party sites these are your IT professionals for the most part um and by by increasing the requirements for that we also saw a rapid increase in denials of h&b petitions which very interestingly just like within the last two weeks a court now this this was done in 2017 in the last couple of weeks a court just struck that down saying you can't impose these requirements and as a result they presented that memo but only a couple of weeks ago so you've got you've got a lot of petitions that are being denied and you've got employers who are saying what do we do and and there's a, the answer to that is sue the government sue them because when employers sue the government what happens is the vast majority of those cases get get we get the decisions get turned around they either issue a, a, an approval or the federal government drops the case but many employers are afraid to litigate because they think there might be some retaliatory action but that's not the case at all there won't be i mean it's already retaliatory right they're already making changing the landscape so you're getting 30% increase in denial so so my message to my corporate clients is do not be afraid to litigate because this is the reality in which we're that And your in. firm does this litigation Correct. I'm in business immigration. I don't personally don't do litigation, but I work with litigators to, who do. Okay. Um, now, and the other thing that they tried to do was they tried to, um, they, they, they. I'm, I'm trying to not get into the weeds here, but they put up barriers for foreign students, and they ma- made it a lot easier for foreign students to basically lose legal status. I'm going to give you an example. Um Chris you're you're a foreign student and you're work um, you're allowed to work 20 hours a week while you're a student while you're pursuing your degree you're working 20 hours a week and your manager says so and so just called and said can you just cover one more hour where I so I can get somebody to cover great you work 21 hours a week now that's a violation of your status and that can permanently bar you from the United States or I should say bar you for 10 years Oh. In the, from coming back to the United States. This is what I mean. It's, it, it's like very, the very draconian changes that this administration has been making. They, they've increased the, the, um, the, not only the, the denials, but also the requests for additional evidence. And they also, one thing that they did, which one thing that they threatened to do, but they've never actually implemented it. And I think it's because um, a lot of people put a, made a lot of noise about this but when whenever you whenever an employer files something with the immigration service they file it with the branch of the department of homeland security that's called the US citizenship and immigration services that's the that's the part of the immigration service that processes applications and petitions there's another part of the immigration service called the the um the ice the the uh that that's the part of the government that basically enforces the this the enforcement arm of the immigration service and so um what it, it, what that means is that when if 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 the government wants to go after somebody because they're not in the united states lawfully that process starts with ice's immigration control and enforcement that agency issues what's called a notice to appear 
And that what that is what starts the re, the, the the deportation process. We call it removal now, but that's what starts the removal process. What one of the memos that this administration put out but never implemented was a memo that said when the U, if the USCI remember I said there's a thirty percent increase in denials. The memo said when that denial is issued, the immigrate the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services will issue the notice to appear. So, in other words, it basically took the one arm of the Immigration Service, which was the arm that processes applications and petitions, and turned it into an enforcement arm. And and it by doing so, it, again, th- this hasn't been implemented, but the memo is still out there. It can happen at any time. But by doing so, you have an agency that is that is now completely the, the, the mission of this agency is enforcement more than anything else. It, I should also mention I, I I didn't think of this, but the the immigra- immigration service also with this administration changed its mission, which 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 was really interesting because the the mission used to be very service oriented, and now it's much more protection oriented. So protection of the u.s so what is the what is the mission what was it and what is it now let me i'll have to find that okay so i can answer it now okay go ahead okay so so the former mission was this the uscis again that's the that's the arm of the agency that processes applications and petitions the uscis secures america's promise as a nation of immigrants by providing accurate and useful information to our customers granting immigration and citizenship benefits, promoting an awareness and understanding of citizenship and insurance the, in, and ensuring the integrity of our immigration system. That's the former mission. Here's what the mission reads now. U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services administers the nation's lawful immigration system, safeguarding its integrity and promise by efficiently and fairly adjudicating requests for immigration benefits while protecting Americans, securing the homeland, and honoring our values. So it's a lot, it sounds a lot more protectionist. Protective, exactly, as opposed to service-oriented. It's much more, that's very intentional. So from a from a purely utilitarian philosophy viewpoint, someone may not feel bad about separating um, parents from their children, and they may not feel bad about you know not denying people access to the country because they're coming from some war-torn area or they're being persecuted. So you may not feel bad about all those things because you, you just don't care. But most people, regardless of lack of empathy, et cetera, they probably should care that businesses are actually being hurt by the administration's mm-hmm. immigration policy. Correct. There is a there is a document that I will send you the link to that you can maybe put in with your podcast. Yeah, we'll definitely post it. It's it's put out by the American Immigration Lawyers Association, and it's called "Deconstructing the Invisible Wall." So the the idea is that there's been threats of building a wall and having Mexico pay for that a wall along the southern border that, that Mexico will pay for. That didn't happen, as we know, and every attempt he's made has prevented has been has been shot down. But that doesn't mean he hasn't built a wall, and and the invisible wall that we're talking about are these very things: the, these these proclamations that suspend entry, these uh, executive orders that increase denials of petitions, the these threats to 
revoke earlier petitions and previously approved petitions and make employers go through the whole process all over again. These are all part of what we call the, there's still a wall, there's still barriers there to immigration. It's just an invisible wall. So the American Immigration Lawyers Association put out this um, this um, informational booklet called Deconstructing the Invisible Wall that talks about all of these things. And I'll, I'll send you the link. Thank you. It's, we'll definitely it's, it's it. worth reading. It's about a year and a half old, I'd say maybe yeah, April. It's two years old, but it's still very, very um, valid even today. So to conclude then, so John, thank you very much for this podcast and all the info, all the excellent information. Um, all your contact information will be listed in the show notes. If anyone's having immigration um, issues or if you're a company and you are having immigration issues, as John said, you can sue the government lawfully and you should not be aware, afraid of um, repercussions. And for anyone who's interested in um, immigration issues for a whole host of reasons, we'll post all the articles that you referenced. And again, if anyone needs information, I, I can personally recommend John and his legal team without reservation. So John, thank you so much for taking the thank time to podcast. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.